I'm Alexandra Kreis and you're listening to Outer Travel in a Journey. Journeying now for 30 years into the life and practice of yoga, I have met many who have taken interesting turns when past extraordinary bumps and reached unexpected places. People with whom I shared conversations about everyday struggles, intimate realizations, larger questions, ideas and dreams. So today, I'm passing on the mic to one of them so we could hear and celebrate the wisdom in people's differences and experiences. Welcome to Outer Travel in a Journey. My guest for today is Connor Creighton in Berlin. Hey, Connor. Hey, Alexandra. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Very good. Connor is here to talk a little bit about his passion around meditation, in particular, the path of meditation after having switched careers many times. So I'd say you're a life artist like me, you know, like the length of my CV would be ungodly to my parents. <laughs> so to speak to all the generations, that is like something so unknown. But yeah, you've come a long way. Uh, tell us. I, I wish I had known the word life artist when I was in my 20s and, and agonizing over like, what am I going to do? Oh no, another job, another change of country and so on and so forth. But uh, yeah, maybe they should have taught us the word life artist at a much younger age, right? <laughs> yeah. And I don't think many people know it still yet. So when did you come about it? Um, mostly just now when you mentioned it. Yeah. <laughs> Not really something I've thought of. That's before. a very fast kind of recognition. Yeah, that's true. We're life artists. Yeah, yeah I, I think it'll be a sign that my healing work is done when I can kind of finally accept that I'm a life artist rather than just someone who is very changeable. <laughs> yes, yes, I love it. But tell us what kind of drove you to change your life that many times and end up in meditation. Um, I think the usual, like looking for. I was looking to find ways, looking to find um, identities where I would finally feel some sense of contentment within myself. Mm. And so, you know, moved to lots of different countries, um, was in many different romances, and tried lots of different things. I think it's kind of notable that, say, the the outside of bartending the one career that I did most was was journalist and writer mm. and mm. the most satisfying moment for me in all those situations was seeing my byline you know seeing my name somewhere and um, which is very funny you know it's all so much about who am I that's my identity because it's in the Guardian newspaper or it's it's on such yeah. a website yeah. and what's what was interesting or at least what I think was I'm very fortunate about all of this is that I had some sort of success, you know, published books as well and had moments where I was like, ah, is this fame? And even those moments were kind of hollow. Mm. So um, I feel very fortunate that I got a tiny bit of fame, but not enough to yeah. actually make me kind of um, believe in it. And so as a result, um, my life didn't improve. My relationship with myself didn't improve. 
And it got to a point where um, I think I was in my early 30s and I had some sort of a one of many, many panic attacks mm. that I had through most of my life. And it was at that stage that I remembered that I had previously seen a, an advert on Facebook for Headspace. Mm. And up until that point, Alexandra, I think I had been very, very cynical about meditation. And wow. Yeah, and very cynical about spirituality in general. Mm. And still am, uh, I'll admit. There's a, there's a lot of elements of spirituality that I'm like, no, this is not for me. Um, but in that, uh, in, that, in that moment, I suppose I was suffering sufficiently to try something beyond my comfort zone. And yeah. I tried to meditate. And that, mm. that was the beginning of it for me. I noticed already in that very first meditation that I did that, uh, oh, there's a second of relief inside this. Mm. Mm. So I just did it on repeat for the whole day. Really? And, wow. then, and then not long after that, I signed up to a 10-day silent retreat, which is perhaps in hindsight, a little ill-advised. <laughs> but, but in the end, you know, I mean, it kind of, it, 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 um, diving in at the deep end taught me how to swim. Um, yeah, the big leap, right? And that's what I think too, like I, I did, you know, so-called stupid things, but it just shows how much the gravitational pull of that truth for us is at that moment, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's lovely how you sort of mentioned that, like how you describe it as a gravitational pull. Because mm. as, as, as I go kind of deeper along this path, um, the more I recognize that there are certain forces and you can, in, in maybe in Buddhist terminology, you'd call it the Dharma. Yeah. And, and maybe kind of like the language on the streets of Nikon, we'd call it the universe. <laughs> But mm. there are certain things that are, I mean, in, in Catholic Ireland, where I grew up, we'd call them guardian angels. But there's just certain kind of a, a protective schemata. And um, that's something that I've been really kind of recognizing a lot more. And um, that's, that's very satisfying. Yeah, and um, I, I find it so, so important not to see this journey as an end of, you know, like I used to, I started in my 20s with yoga, you know, and then suddenly it became the holy grail and it had to have all the answers. Mm -hmm. um, in some ways it was important for me and my body because the gravitation was really big um, yeah. up, up to an extent where I didn't want it to teach it because it was mine I was like a little smirtle this is mine you know it's mine I'm not going to teach this not going to make it my profession but what kind of picked you further on the path um, with regard to teaching yeah and also kind of following meditation then Yeah, well, I, I think the, the teaching thing just sort of came out of a combination of um, a runaway ego <laughs> and then also a kind of a, <clears throat> a, a gently growing compassion. Mm. So I think at the start, um, because you know yourself, like when you start to meditate, it, it activates your empathy. And it, it inspires a certain amount of compassion in a person, you know, as you mm. begin to discover your own mind and the habits and 
the, 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 the difficulties and the suffering that you're experiencing, you recognize, oh, fuck, everyone's experiencing this. Mm. That inspires a kind of a, 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 an energy, almost like an activism where you do want to help others. And yeah. I think at the beginning, when I first started to meditate, I probably pushed help on people for the sake of my ego. I wanted to be considered this person. And um, um, I, I, I guess then kind of as I continued to work, um, I, I began to perhaps step back from pushing it. And then maybe, uh, maybe at the very beginning, I was probably a little annoying. <laughs> I hope I'm less annoying now. <laughs> oh, no. yeah. But it's like, I, I think um, when you kind of, you know, said what interests you both, and you haven't said it in this interview, but in like as a, you know, preparation for what we're going to talk about is to really develop compassion, you know, and so that's my compassionate part. Okay, so I'm a bit obnoxious when it comes to my favorite new toy you know like everybody needs to see it here this is my new spiritual gadget this idea you know and why not be compassionate about that part of ourselves totally and i i think um um i mean if you're not you know there's a lovely expression i think it's from jack cornfield that if your kindness doesn't include yourself then your kindness is incomplete mm. and i think as we as we approach meditation um, we see that it really is the art of getting right with yourself, of accepting yourself and then responding to the things you do, the things yeah. that perhaps you find are unpleasant in you, but responding to them with kindness, like boundless kindness. And um, I, 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 I guess I traveled through my life with a lot of guilt Mm. a very Irish cliche if there ever was one you know with just guilt about leaving home guilt about maybe hurting people guilt about not sort of the way I treated my body with alcohol and things like this mm. and then sort of trading that guilt for just this acceptance and kindness was um, a beautiful way to just transform a, a personal relationship and, and I think anybody can do that yeah yeah so let's move one step back for for the dear listener we jumped from you moved from a bit of meditation into a 10-day silent retreat at which we both laughed and maybe some people aren't in the know so can yeah. you can you describe a little bit why yeah. that kind of, of course so the 10-day ten, ten meditation retreat that i did was um a Vipassana retreat. Now, this is a Vipassana is a very ancient style of meditation, and um, the retreat that I did was Vipassana as taught by this Burmese teacher called Goenka. Um, there are different types of Vipassana, obviously, but the one that I did was taught by this guy Goenka. And the basic premise is that it's ten days, uh, where you sit in silence, you meditate from anything from about ten to 14 hours a day uh, inside these one hour long intervals with small breaks in between. And, and the idea is not that it punishes you, but that it creates the perfect conditions for non-distraction. So you're, you're in a kind of a, you're in a, a temporary community and it's almost like a kind of a, a sensory deprivation chamber and that you've no reading, you've no conversation, 
you've enough food, but not so much that you would kind of like gorge yourself and be distracted mm. by that food. And so when everything is reduced like that, you have the opportunity to go very, very deep in terms of your meditation. So it's, it's, it's the one, it's a wonderful, it's wonderful conditions, but also like any kind of deep internal work, it involves a huge amount of soul searching. Hmm. Um, there can be huge amounts of anguish and um, you, you just, you experience and reflect on so much that has happened to you and that you've experienced. Hmm. Um, but this happens within a very, very loving and supportive place. And that's, that's always been my feeling with Vipassana is that I'm crying my heart out mm. into somebody else's arms. Wow. Metaphorically, you're not, we don't touch, <laughs> but metaphorically, the, the community is supportive. But that's so beautifully said because mm -hmm. I did the Goenka meditation, Vipassana, and it took me like from knowing that it exists doing it it took me two years to enroll and then I went in with a lot of fright and anxiety of whether I master the length of the um, the length of the meditation and the solitude you know because even yeah. though at the time I was coming from yoga I think it's still hard to lower your dopamine you know like intake and there weren't smartphones at the time when I did it. So uh, mm -hmm. I wasn't triggered as much as people are these days. Um, and to me, it was a whole kind of excursion into uh, I'm going to prepare for a fight. And now that you say, you know, to you, it was just like releasing into loving arms. You know, I wish I was going to your Vipassana meditation. <laughs> if, if I can just amend that, Alexandra, it felt like that at the end. Ah, yeah. But there were, there, there, were, there were many days, I mean, in particular, day three, four, five, six, and seven, <laughs> where I thought, Connor, you've joined a cult. Um, I don't want any of this pain anymore. Um, I don't want to deal with the, the difficulty of this because, because it is very much like uh, an, intense, an intense therapy. It is. And that was, um, that left you still wanting more though, I understand, right? From coming out of it and yeah, yeah. Um, it, 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 but it also kind of, it brought me to a place where I could, I mean, I had, ex I had experimented and actually before I kind of got into meditation, I worked for Vice Magazine where I was more or less like a kind of a, what I would call like a restaurant critic for psychedelics. Mm. So I traveled to different places and met different uh, shamans and did different kind of um, therapies and, and plant medicine stuff. And um, some of it was like very ugly and very excessive mm. because that was what a good article would be, you know, a good yeah. article and yeah. requires a little bit of sort of mm. uh, th those excesses. And uh, I was doing that work as a journalist, but actually kind of looking for some healing in myself. And yeah. what I noticed with all of those things is that they, it, it felt like they gave me um, glimpses, but they never gave me anything tangible. And when I started with Vipassana, I was like, oh wow, I'm doing this 
all on my own. Uh, hmm. And then when I left the Vipassana, I felt very empowered because I recognized, okay, I did all the work there. And I know that there's a certain amount of work that's involved with plant medicines, but that work is kind of passive in comparison to sitting for 14 hours on your ass and following your breath. Yeah, yeah. And so that that was kind of very empowering, I thought. So the Goenka tradition asks people to do it like for 10 days, I know that, and longer. And then when you come out of it, one of my kind of mishap was that I didn't really reconnect to it because I did not want to sit for an entire day. The yoga community as such was offering me kind of one and a half hour sessions. You know, if I wanted to connect into the yoga crowd, I, I found it there very quickly. Just go to a class, you know, the rest you do on your own. And with the past and I never felt that way. How did you experience that yourself? You know, that kind of really from 10 intense days to maybe you have to commit to a full day or what did you, what happened to you? Um, I, I think you mean by like commit to a full day, you mean the, the, the suggestion that you meditate two hours every day after the meditation, is that? Oh, no, sorry. Then I, I, learned this in Ireland, you know, and then mm. the community itself said, okay, you got to sit every day by yourself. I found that a tall order next to my yoga class. Yeah. But if I wanted to meet the community, it was only in a setup of you come for the day, you know, and then you meditate the whole day through. So maybe, I mean, that's been quite a while, two decades almost now. Um, so that mm. might have changed. But what did you experience to keep you in the loop? Um, well, I think, I mean, personally, I have never really, um, there, is, there is the guideline that when you've done Vipassana, the Goenka style Vipassana, that you then should try to meditate for two hours every day. I think sometimes this is a little bit like, um, I think these are these things can quite often be mm, what's the word? I think they can be co-opted by people who are very, very dependent upon rules. Um, and now I'm not sure that um, you need to or you need to kind of feel that you have somehow failed dramatically if you don't manage to sit for two hours every day. I myself, like I sit for an hour every day, mm. or less. but I'm also very okay with myself if I've been traveling or something and I haven't meditated that day. I, I think that's fine. I think you need to, part of your growth is actually to grow beyond the method yeah. and, and, and integrate the learning, integrate the wisdom and recognize the, the importance of the method but, you know, it's like that beautiful old expression, you know, don't confuse the telescope for the stars. Hmm. This is all that Vipassana is a telescope. Hmm. But if you can see the stars, you can access them in different ways, too. But at the same time, we know um, how difficult it is to form routines. We know how difficult it is to, say, break free from bad habits and patterns. So I think this instruction, this guidance that you try to sit for two hours every day and that you should try and come and do like a 10-day Vipassana once a year and meet up. 
I think these things are all sort of a, a safety net because I know myself that I even maybe three years after along the, and I'd already at this stage, maybe done four Vipassanas, five Vipassanas, I stopped meditating. Mm. And the reason I stopped meditating is because I found myself in a new country and I couldn't find any other meditators. And my life was in a particular moment of chaos and the days were going by when I wasn't meditating and more and more chaos was seeping into my life. And it was only then when I somehow kind of managed to um, jump free from that country. I moved to LA at the time and somehow in this beautiful turn of circumstances, um, ended up looking for a place to stay. I was living in a, in a trailer at the time in the desert and got offered this opportunity to park my trailer on ground that was belonging to a, a Thai monastery. And they said, oh, you can come meditate with us. And then I was, I was like, oh, well, okay, this is, I'm back. I'm back in the game. <laughs> <sighs> Wonderful. Yeah. That's so beautiful. And that's what I feel like I'm trying often to tell people, you know, as you say, I seem to be mm. of a strict, disciplined minded person. And I attract, of course, these kind of people into my life um, mm -hmm. in some form or manner. But to me, I've kind of, feel like when something is not sitting right with me, you know, I don't do it just because I should and it should bring me results. And I do understand more and more through studying Vedas, you know, like in particular Ayurveda in this connection, what you're talking about is when you are in a vata, in a wind kind of space and highlighted um you know form of being why because you move because you had trauma and so on and so forth mm. you cannot calm it by just forcing it to calm it's very hard if you ever try to i mean you have a cat i have dogs if you ever try to to mangle down an animal that's really frightened you know you're going to only get bad results and that's the same way with our minds you know and our personalities you know mm. I guess that's the importance of patience, right? Yeah. And trust. I, th I think it's more also about trust and trust and faith. Mm. You know, that we have faith that this is our path and our pull, you know. So if that might have been an end to your meditation, I don't know. You know, it might have been. And maybe something else would come along to bring you onto the spirit or keep you on the spiritual path, which is only a path of self-pondering and seeing you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who we are really. <laughs> yeah, 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 very true. So my earlier question really was around, you know, I know a lot of people who really do well when they are engaged with teachers like you, you know, or retreats like you spend time in, but what, you know, how do you, how do you make the next step when you missed, you don't want to miss the gap. You want to kind of make it a habit. What is, what was your success or how did your own personal habit come along? Meditation habit. I think, um, so like I mentioned before, Alexander, like I was sort of, 
quite cynical about all of this. So as you can imagine, like um, a cynical person, I had carefully curated a friend circle who were also cynical to, you know, support my <laughs> bias and uh, as we do. So one of the most important things that I realized that helped me was trying to gravitate more and more towards these people who I would have thought were like unbelievable, like were like oh, too spiritual or oh, too kind of too airy fairy, too happy go lucky. You know, I, I definitely like fell into this sort of that cliche character of I'm miserable and I enjoy being miserable and I like my miserable dark friends. Mm. You know? And as I started to go through uh, meditation and vipassana, and I recognized, oh no, there's so much lightness in me. Mm. There's so much joy in me. I would like to also have more joyous people around me. I think I had before, um, had definitely considered that happy people were probably a little bit dumb. You know, and I was like, us miserable people, we're actually the smart ones. We're really living the life. And um, so a, a big thing for me was just like actually having the, the, the courage to enter into those communities. So that, that was very simply that kind of like seeing other people who were meditating in different places and being like, oh, do you think I could come and join you? And I felt very shy in a lot of those places. And I just experimented with lots of different groups. And then through that, made friends who are also meditators. Mm. And then that whole process, Alexandra, just normalized meditation. Mm. I can remember um, almost like my coming out as a meditator and telling people, oh, you know, in different things like, oh, someone would invite you for dinner. And I would say, am I gonna tell them that I've got a meditation thing first and I won't be there till nine or will I lie and just say, I've got some work to do. And I remember those moments of saying, actually, I've got to meditate with a bunch of people, but I'll see you at nine mm. and going for dinner and being kind of a little bit nervous about the questions about meditation. So, so sort of for me, the, the big things that helped were those small giant steps of talking about it, normalizing it. Mm. Um, and then like spending as much of my free time as possible, reading those books that I had before perhaps been a little bit cynical about, you know, even things like Eckhart Tolle. And mm. um, that, that book, The Power of Now must have come into my life on about six different occasions. And each occasion I laughed at it. I was like, what sort of weak-minded, feeble person wants a book as with a title as simple and asinine as The Power of Now. But mm -hmm. uh, having finally kind of swallowed a little bit of that kind of resistance and ego, I can say The Power of Now is a phenomenal book. Mm -hmm. um, and, and all of the, it's, it's, so many of these books, you know, with their the cheesy blue covers and maybe there's a unicorn racing across the beach, like they've got phenomenal wisdom in them. And, um, but if you are cynical, if you are guarded, you're never going to open up to that wisdom. No. So I, I think the big thing, the thing that helped me, and I know this is a rather abstract answer um, to what could also have been a, a practical question, but the thing that helped me was just allowing myself permission to enter into the world of spirituality. Mm. I think at a practical level, what also helped was allowing myself be a bad meditator. Mm. So if that even meant I'm just doing five minutes a day, 
or I'm doing like five minutes, but I'm lying in my bed. Mm. I was okay with that. If I was meditating through like a hangover, I was like, I'm okay with this. Mm. So kind of learning to sort of allow myself to be a sloppy meditator who sometimes would miss days, mm. just, just kind of created a platform of acceptance that then allowed me to grow into a much more stable, secure meditator. And mm. I mean, now I, would, I couldn't miss a day. So beautiful that you open up that space for that leap from one to another, you know, from one state of thinking from into the openness of making the world whole as such, you know, that everything that exists is fine, you know, as well our dark sides and cynicism has a point in, in our life at times, you know, it, um, I, I think so at least, but Now we, uh, we find you become, you've become a med meditation teacher, yeah, which we talked about initially. And yeah. what is that like? And how did you make that decision? Well, um, I feel the decision was sort of made for me in ways that it, um, um, as I began to meditate more, um, I got asked questions. And the, the thing about meditation is that it is not a, um, it, it's, a it's a very practical thing. It's an experience-based learning. Um, and if I tell you about meditation, it really doesn't make any difference to you. You know, the knowledge of meditation will not help you, but experience of meditation can transform your life. So that was the thing I would get asked questions about meditation now and I would go, well, you know, you're, you're, you're following the breath, you're recognizing thoughts, but you're somehow just observing the thoughts rather than thinking the thoughts. You know, it's like you're, on, you're not in the water, you're outside the water. And you come up with all these metaphors and eventually you go, hold on, close your eyes. I'm just going to guide you. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and that was the beginning of the teaching. And then I feel very, very lucky. I was in Ireland and I was working on a book um, it was winter in Ireland. I was in the countryside. And a friend of mine had recently started to work with a group of men who had just come out of prison. Mm. So she, she was running a program with these men um, who, you know, helping them get back into employment. And she asked me if I would teach them to meditate. And at that stage, I hadn't really taught an awful lot. Um, but I knew that I couldn't say no. Mm. I knew there was no way I could say no. I also knew that there was no way that I could um, uh, deny these men the incredible teachings that I had had. And it would have been very selfish of me to have put my uh, fears and insecurities and intimidation between the teaching and these men. So um, I, I did that and it, 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 it went very smoothly simply because I sort of had this sort of realization before I went into teach. I was like, Connor, it's not about you. It's the teaching. And in that way, I was able to step back a little bit mm. and just deliver the teaching. And, um, and like, I'm, I'm not going to lie. It was such a thrill. Every time I would leave the, the space, I, I remember like driving back to the house that I was staying in the country And sometimes I'd cry, sometimes I'd sing my head off, sometimes I'd drum on the steering wheel and go like, oh, you know, it, it was, I was just, 
I was witnessing this huge transformation in my life and I was very excited and felt so much gratitude that I had this opportunity. Um, oh my God, you know, I could sit and listen to you all day. You have really a gift of storytelling there and, uh, and a dr wanting to do what you do. Um, mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, that was a, a very nice description of that which you do. And I lost my question, to be honest. I'm just, just so <laughs> fell down the rabbit hole <laughs> listening to you. Uh, <laughs> There was one thing you, 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 we haven't covered. So to me, the Vipassana, although I know there are different Vipassana meditations, you know, I only experienced the good Guenka method. Yeah. So what method is it that you picked up? Where did you pick it up? And how do you teach it? Well, I would say that my teaching style is very much a cross-pollination of what I've experienced in real life. I, I spent some time in a, a, a Mahayana monastery in northern India. I also studied at the, at the Insight Meditation Center over in the Bay Area near San Francisco, and then have also been a, a scholar and a devotee of YouTube for very many years. So the, the, the wonderful thing about, about this now, and I, I really, um, I kind of mentioned this at the start that I, I've been to India. I went looking for gurus in India, but I found better ones online. And uh, that, that was the, that, that's sort of been my experience. You know, I went down yeah. to Ama, the hugging guru mm -hmm. down in Kerala and I was like, this is not my person and you know went to kind of up and met these sadhus up in the, the lower himalayas and like these are not my people but then online have met like some of the most incredible teachers um and this this i really feel is the beauty of this age mm. is that we we get to create our own traditions mm. we get to kind of drag pieces of wisdom from all these different places with the security and the foundation that your intuition is the greatest filter for what is good and what is BS. Mm. And, and I, I think that's definitely a, a lot of my teaching is, has been based on this idea that if it works for you, use it. Yeah. And then, and and, and with the idea that kind of your meditation should be a tool that allows you to become boundlessly kind towards yourself. Mm. And I, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've worked in some meditation traditions where there was such an insistence upon like the Burmese posture. You know, mm. you have to sit in a certain way. And um, again, do you know what I mean? I have my my knees don't even bend very well when I sit yeah. down you know years of years have been a footballer but you know it's sort of like I do like to think that you know some of these aspects of meditation some of the more rigorous old traditions of meditation mm. um can be played with we can be gentler to ourselves um 
and 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 I I I really kind of feel that that has been um, the 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 type of meditation and the and the the I, I guess the the intention behind my meditation is to create a very much um, deeply spiritual teaching style that is accessible to as many people as possible. Hmm. And you do these um, meditations online nowadays or yeah. daily or what frequency can well, people check in? Yeah, well, I have a Wednesday morning class that I do every week um, hmm. at 9 a.m. in Berlin and 8 a.m. in Ireland. And um, then also do a kind of, I do one-on-one -on -one courses with people, which is a little bit like kind of um, mindful psychology, if you want to call it that. It's sort of, we use meditation um, um, to uh, just explore what's going on in your head, to become a little bit more sensitive towards your habits and your patterns and why you sometimes feel shit about yourself and sometimes feel good. And we just develop techniques for and workarounds for yeah. kind of allowing people. And this is the thing that I really think once you start to meditate, you recognize, oh, hold on. I can actually have the life of my dreams here. It's not so far away anymore. When you're suffering from depression, as pretty much all of us are, You know, all yeah. of us are sort of dealing with this low levels of depression and high levels of yeah. depression. Yeah. You're kind of numb to any hope. You're, you're often numb to even the possibility of future joy. And as you begin to meditate, you can experience little bits of lightness and little moments recognition where, hold on, I can actually steer the ship here. Mm. I can take back some control. And that's so empowering um, and so beautiful and such a kind of a, a fortunate balm in, in this, this world, which is ordinarily um, quite difficult for us. Yeah, and it kind of, as, as you said earlier, you know, what we call the rat race, you know, the chase after fame and money and stability, at the end of the day is not really offering us everything that we need to, to feel content. Um, and so that has been so easily overlooked in the struggle of mental survival or physical survival. And yeah, it's not like, you know, meditation is going to meditate you a home <laughs> or a house or a roof over your head, but some of the stuff has to do with, you know, not being clear in your responsibility, you know, towards your own life and in love with your responsibility towards life. Yeah, and, and it's also, Alexandra, like, you know, it's this idea that when you have, the vast majority of us have a relationship with our thoughts where we believe everything that we think. When you begin to study your thoughts at a neuroscientific level, you discover that the vast majority of our thoughts, over 80% of them are negative. Mm. meaning their thoughts about stress, anxiety, and scarcity. Mm. So if you can very simply change your relationship with your thoughts, yeah. so stop reacting to all the natural biological alarms that are firing in your head 60,000 times a day. If you can do that, you know, like, you know yourself, Alexander, like it's, it's the middle of summer, but thoughts of Christmas will appear. 
you mm. know, things like this, or worries about next year, which mm. is a totally different reality that we don't need to be concerned with right now. And the yeah. more we are concerned with it right now, the more miserable we will become. So through meditation and through learning to just change our relationship with our thoughts and mm. harness our attention, mm. like our attention is the most valuable thing that we have. Mm. If we can learn to harness that, then you can point that attention to creating your dreams. And yeah. it's a formula, right? It's the, you're talking about quantum theory as, you know, probably, you know, we're going into the direction of Dr. Joe Dispenza and, mm. uh, you, and all this creational stuff that lies in the unified field, you know, because mm -hmm. where our attention goes, you know, our energy will end up and where our energy end up we deal with manifestations of yeah know, yeah like like that whole world to be honest with you alexandra i don't know that very well and i don't understand it very well but i do know that if your if your attention is focused on how miserable your life is mm. and then you can take that attention and actually go focus it on the things you can be grateful for then that's then your whole world has just been changed absolutely if you can feel that yeah if you can can add to the attention the physical experience that's the yeah. main difference i think yeah mm, yes well that was a delightful afternoon with you connor <laughs> Is there something you want to finish off with, like maybe a word of advice or wisdom you want to share? I mean, you said already so many wise things in that no, sense. But, but maybe just sort of, I'd love to finish with a challenge. And yeah. This is, it's a challenge um, wrapped up in a quote from one of my favorite teachers, an Indian man called Jiddu Krishnamurti. Mm. And, and he proclaimed, that all the, all the peace and all the happiness and all the joy that you're looking for are already inside you. You're just not paying enough attention. Mm -hmm. So that is kind of the challenge. Mm -hmm. Many, many wiser people than me for thousands upon thousands of years have proclaimed, think that the joy, peace and happiness that we look for outside is actually on the inside. And the way to recognize that is to pay more attention. Hmm. So I would just say to people who are listening, like, don't believe a word I've said, but try that for yourself. Hmm. Or try it with Connor himself. You can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because he knows how to bring you through the experience. Yeah. Well, thank you um, again yeah. thank for you. coming onto this show. As I said, it was a really beautiful conversation. I enjoyed it very much. I hope the listener also got a lot of questions and answered in it. And if you want to get in touch with Connor, you get all the information in the show notes where we have his website and contact details. So for now, we say goodbye from this end in Berlin. <laughs> goodbye. Thanks, Alexander.